0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Who am I? Defining Garland Nixon. Ideology versus tribalism and the illusion of democracy.
1: Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. So what I want to talk about today, you know, I had somebody ask me recently, you know, Garland, I can't figure you out. You say you're a lefty, but then you say things that make me think you're all over the place ideologically and blah, 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 blah. So let me talk about ideology a little bit. Just talk about that a little bit today. Have a philosophical discussion today about ideology, right? I'm a whatever. You know, how do you label yourself in an ideology? If you say some people think if you I've heard people say when I say, what's your ideology? I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Like that's an ideology. Like being a member of the party is actually an ideology, right? Which it isn't. So, an ideology you may be. Here's a, a, an example. Um I mean, well, let's see what it says. A set of doctrines and this is important, ideology, a set of doctrines or beliefs that are shared by members of a social group or that form the basis of a political, economic, or other system. The science of ideas. So, I got a bunch of ideas that go together, right? I am a progressive, I am a liberal, I am a conservative, I am a libertarian, I am a whatever, right? People view that as an ideology, a group or a set of ideas. So people think I am a fill in the blank, right? I am a none of the above. I don't have a name. I don't have an ideology. I will say I'm a lefty because my um, my views align with the traditional left. What? But the question becomes, when you say I'm a lefty, I'm a progressive, I'm a liberal, whatever, you know, okay, that's just a word but it has a meaning. And behind an ideology is a set of ideas, right? And let me put it to you like this, and here's my issue, this is why I don't have an ideology. If you say I am a progressive, I am a conservative, I am whatever, right? that is a that is what you see as your method for attaining something. How do you want to get there? Well, I'm a liberal, so I believe that if we do this, 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 this will get us where we want to go. What about you? I'm a socialist. So if I believe that if we do this, 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 and this, this will get us where we need to be. What about you? I'm a conservative. I believe this, 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 this will get us where we need to do, be. Well, here's my first question. Where is it that you believe we need to be? Before you even think about your ideology, before you try to define your ideology, the first issue is, where are you trying to go? What are you trying to achieve? How do you see our society operating best? To me, it's like this. I'm going to drive to Philadelphia, right? I've— did I've determined the outcome that I want. I want to get the center City, at Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. That is my the first thing I have to do is I got to decide what I want. What, you know, I can say what I want to do when I get there, why I want to get there. But that's where I want to get. Now, what do I need? I need a method to get there. I can catch a train, a plane, walk, bicycle. I have any options. Right. To me, that's ideology. The ideology is this. I'm trying to get somewhere. How do I do it? For instance, let's say you talk about religion, right? One person, what what is it? Where do you think? Well, one person says, well, based on my religion, I believe I want to get to heaven. They believe in heaven. Okay. And your religion, if you believe in heaven, is how you get there. How do you get there? I want to be a Catholic. I want to be a Jehovah's Witness. I want to be a uh, whatever, a Muslim, whatever. If you believe in heaven, your question is, how do you get there? Now, what happens next? Well, I want to be a Catholic. You're not a Catholic. Well, what happens has to happen. You got to go to church and class and they have to teach you what Catholics think. If you're going to be a Catholic, you got to know this is what Catholics believe. This is what Catholics think. And if you're a Catholic, it'll get you to heaven or whatever your particular religion is, right? We Catholics all believe this, right? That is the path. That is the method to get you where you want to go. Most people haven't even thought about where they want to go. They, they're like, Maya, what are your ideology? I'm a, Most people haven't even thought about ideology. The only thing they think is I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm whatever the case may be, right? But they haven't thought of what their actual ideology is, what they believe, how they believe we get there. But start off with where is there? What do you believe is best? What do you think the government should provide for the American people? How much trust do you have for the government? Do you think the, the government should provide housing for the poor? Do you think it should provide food for the poor? Do you think it should give everybody a free education? Do you think it should provide—on and on and on. And if so, why? And you get a a list of outcomes that you think, this is what I think. See, to me, that's part of voting. If I'm going to vote for somebody, I'm going to say, this is what I want. Here's a list of the things that I want. Which candidate is going to support those? Now, where we are in America is this. You have to vote for this candidate. Well, what do you want? I want a list of things. Is that candidate going to give them to you? None of them. Zero. I can't get any of them. Well, then why are you voting for that candidate? Because there's another candidate over there that I'm scared of. Well, at that point, you don't have an ideology. You don't have anything. You're just voting out of fear. Well, we've got to vote this candidate. Why? To stop that candidate. Well, okay. Well, who's your who's your, who's your your candidate you're supporting? Well, he's not that candidate. What's his name? I think his name is I'm Not That Candidate. That's all you got. And so now when you've reduced yourself, to the point that you don't have an ideology anymore. You don't have an outcome you're looking for. You don't have anything. You don't have, hey, I think the government should provide us the person you vote for, is there any chance you'll get it? Absolutely none. Now, why are you going to vote for him? Because I'm afraid of that candidate over there. You have now been reduced to nothing but a puppet for the wealthy, but a puppet for the powerful. You—why? What do you vote anyway? You have the illusion of democracy. You have the illusion that you're participating in the choice of the government. But if you have no chance of getting the outcome that you desire, what the heck are you participating in? You're participating in nothing. You're just going through the motions. You know what you might as well do? You might as well stand outside on your front porch and flap your arms up and down like you're, like you're flying. You might as well do a rain dance and say, that's going to give me the outcome that I want. You probably haven't even thought about the outcome you want. And now you know there's you no chance of getting it with the candidate you're supporting, but you're scared of another candidate because you're afraid he'll give you something you don't want. You're going to get that anyway. You're going to get what you don't want. And now you've been reduced to a shriveling mass of nothing, being dragged around by your ears by the wealthy and powerful. And the other part of ideology, let's say you're part of this group, right? I am a fill in the blank. I'm a conservative. I'm a progressive. I'm a whatever, right? You're still focusing on the wrong thing. Here's why. Because you're focusing on what's the most important thing is how you get there, not where you're going. For instance, America has been taught for years. You got in America. This is what you're taught. You got to hate communism and socialism. You got to hate it. It's like a religion in America. Here's the problem. I don't know how many times I've had this happen, where I've had some people say, "Yeah, communism, socialism. Oh my God, please. Oh, please. I hate that. We can't ever think about such horrible things." And I'll say, "Look, do me a favor. What's that?" I don't really know that much about socialism and uh, and communism. Of course, I'm lying. That's one of the things that I do is I pretend to be ignorant to find out what you know, right? So So, someone says, okay, yeah, that communism. So Oh, man. And um, I said, yeah, well, I don't know much about it. Explain to me about this whole communism, socialism thing. What is going on? What do they believe? How's it work? And you know what I usually get? A blank stare because they don't know. They have no idea. They, they, they hate communism or socialism. They don't even know what it is. They barely know what capital—that's America. Most people don't even really know what capitalism is. If you ask them to describe it to you, they can't. If you ask them to describe socialism or communism, they can't. It's just like, I'm a member of this group, and as a, a, a trained, trained like a dog member of this group, we all hate X. We don't even have to know what it is. They'll give you something to hate, and you hate it. They give you a person to hate. I've had people say the same thing about any number of world leaders, any number. I don't know how many times I've done that. With you name a world leader that they tell us is evil, and I draw people in? Well, tell me about that guy's evil. Oh, my God, he's a horrible dictator. Really, tell me about his, you know, his dictatorial practices, his history, who he's mangled and killed, the kittens that he's torn in half with his bare hands. Tell me about it. You know what I usually get? A blank stare. They know this guy's a dictator and he's evil. They just don't know why. They have no clue. They know how, I'll put it like this they know the music, but they don't know the words. They can hum along. You ever have somebody, you ever know somebody that always hums along with a song and they'll like say a few words that they know and then they'll just make up some words that rhyme? Oh, that bad. And they know the music, they don't know the words, so they just make some up as they go along. That's what you're looking at. A bunch in America, people who don't have the answers, and they think they do. They don't even have the questions. All they have is assertions. They turn on the news, and somebody tells them something or other. And they say, yes, uh, that's bad because of X. And I will say, can you give me a little bit more? I don't really know much about that. And I find out that they don't even have a superficial grasp of the issues. And ideology is about focusing on—let's say you're a libertarian. And you believe the government should be out of off of our back and the government, we shouldn't have all of these rules and laws and on and on and on. Right. Here's the problem with it. The libertarian focuses on what? Not on the outcome. Their whole focus is this is as a libertarian, these are the things that we believe, and this is what we must do and If we do that, it'll somehow magically give us the outcome, but it ain't no difference between a libertarian and any other the other um ideologies. Most people get involved with a group of people and a group of people all come together and they have a set of beliefs, and they accept that set of beliefs, and they defend that set of beliefs. but you know what they ain't going to do with that set of beliefs. They're not going to examine that set of beliefs. They're not going to look at the suite of beliefs, at the things that they believe, at the groups of things that they believe, and ask themselves about it honestly. I've heard people say, I support whatever, fill in the blank. And when you ask them, they don't have no answers. They ain't got no answers. And here's what happens. They belong to a group of people, and their group all believes certain things. And you know what they know? that if they start questioning things, they'll be kicked out of the group. Here's my point. This is what we do on a daily basis in America. I watch the news. They give us a bunch of lies and propaganda and then people repeat it. And most of the time, they don't even know what it means. And what they have taught us now When it comes to this ideology business is to focus on the process, to focus on, well, I'm a conservative or I'm a this or I'm a that. Well, he's a conservative, therefore he's evil. No, I'm a liberal. No, I'm a progressive. Well, if you're not a progressive or a liberal or a conservative or whatever the case may be, you're evil. But what they don't, what we're not encouraged to do, and this is what I encourage people to do, I don't care what you are. I don't care what you are. None of my business, who cares? What I encourage you to do is your right. I support your right to be whatever you want. But what's important to me, I think, is this. Whatever you are, understand that you have a group of unexamined assumptions. What I'm saying it's important to do is to stop and think about them, to say, I believe this, 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 and this. And then stop and say, let me, in an unbiased manner— Examine those things. Examine those things as if I was another person. Examine those things as if I didn't believe them, if I didn't know they were true. Look at what people say to push back against what I—listen to people. Listen to someone who disagrees with me ideologically. Listen to people talk who disagree with me and see what they have to say and see if any of it makes sense or not. Rather than just listen to it critically or listen to them critically just to say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, listen to it and actually think, does it make sense? Do we have the intellectual and emotional ac- uh, uh, capacity to do that kind of self-examination? You know, um, was I forgot who it was, Cicero, Plato, Socrates, one of them who said the unexamined life is not worth living. That's what they meant. The unexamined life, the unexamined ideology, you know, the unexamined set of beliefs. You know, um, I was brought up as a Baptist. And when, became, when I became a teenager, I started examining these things. Uh, well, I believe this, 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 this. And one of the things that came to mind, it just came to my mind. And, and this is important. I thought about this. I think this highly influenced me. I thought I'm a black person. Why am I a Baptist? Why? What, what, what reason? How did, Baptist, did Southern Baptist religion find me? And it dawned on me. When my West African ancestors came here, they weren't Southern Baptists, were they? When they got off the slave, they got beaten, they got raped, you know, all the things you get worked to death. But one of the things that they got was converted. And if they didn't get converted, they got beaten until they actually convert. And I realized that Southern, I didn't find Southern Baptist uh, a, a religion. It found me. That it was beaten into my ancestors, and then at some point, maybe another the next generation forgot, and the next, and it, by the third or fourth generation, we thought that whoever whatever ancestors I had thought it was theirs. It wasn't originally, but they thought it was theirs. And by the time it got to me, I was born, and we're celebrating, her. hurray, gave me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. It was good enough for my father, good enough for my grandfather. Okay, maybe not my great-grandfather, because he came from another, um, from Africa, and they had to beat the hell out of him before he would, so it wasn't good enough for him. But once he got it, hey, we all—and I thought to myself, yikes. And I just kind of drifted away, and I'm like, "Uh, I can't do this anymore because it ain't really mine. And I'm thinking that's, you know, and I'm looking at everybody around, and they're clapping, and they're shouting, and they're dancing, and they're doing all of the rituals that you do if you're a Southern Baptist, and I realize— yeah, that was given to me. I ain't saying there's anything wrong with being a Southern Baptist or whatever you are. I'm just saying that's the path that I took. And I talked to my friends and they're Catholics. A lot of Latinos are Catholics, right? And you're like, okay. And I thought to myself, how how how, how how'd they become Catholics? Uh-oh, same thing. The conquistadors right? Sounds so nice for a bunch of murderous thugs. When they came to their land, they cut their heads off, they killed their kids, they tortured them, you're going to be a Catholic or else. And so they become Catholic. And that's that. And really, there was an agreement. The agreement was the South America, the, the amongst the colonial powers, South America, the Catholic nations would get them. North America, the uh, Non-Catholic nations would get them, and there's the dividing line. Right now, Mexico went down; they're Catholics. And if you ain't going to become a Catholic, you're getting killed and your head cut off. So your ancestor's going to become a Catholic, and now you're a Catholic, and you're proud to be a Catholic. If you're like, "I'm a Catholic, Catholic," you think that you're a Catholic, that you found Catholicism. You didn't find it; it was beaten into your ancestors. That's not me saying that you shouldn't be a Catholic or there's anything wrong with Catholicism. But what am I doing? What am I doing? Simply, I'm examining the set of beliefs. I'm examining the reality that we find ourselves in. Because once we examine that reality, sometimes your view of the world changes. Mine does. In fact, let me go one further. Once you examine the unexamined set of beliefs that you have, your world can't help but change it. Yeah, so you get my point. You know, I've talked to people who have gotten uncomfortable when I've talked about religion. I've talked to people that have gotten uncomfortable when I've talked about religion, and and, and I'd be like, yeah, you know, it was beaten into your ancestors, and they get uncomfortable. And that's a good thing. They'd be like, and I've said to them, you know, looks like this conversation is making you a little uncomfortable, and they don't know what to say. Because they listen to it and they know what I'm saying is true, but they're afraid that if they think about that, they may have to start thinking even deeper and make us considerations that will make them uncomfortable. And how do they go home and tell their family? How do they go home and tell their wife? You know, I was talking to some guy today and he brought some questions up about religion that made me uncomfortable and, and I just can't seem to shake them. They don't want to do that.
0: And now on Arts Express are you sorry you married me
2: of course not
0: i
3: mean are you sorry you had to marry me
2: we were never going to talk about that baby tormented by the dark secret that bound him to this woman fighting to control the violent passions that he kept locked inside of him for there was another woman in his house marie who was teasing tantalizing kind of girl who could only spell trouble
3: Aren't you going to kiss me goodbye, Dr. Delaney?
2: And there was Turk, the kind of a guy Doc didn't like to be hanging around Marie. He was too young, too much the male, too sure of what he could do with a girl like her.
3: Turk, I look, you're being ridiculous. Doc's such a nice, quiet man. If he gets any fun out of running his fingers through my hair, why not?
2: Then there was the night that had to happen, the night when the door to Marie's room was locked. Can he kiss like I can?
3: Better. He's perfect and he's in love with me.
2: Sure, that's why he's there, and I'm here. Caught in the wreckage of a shattered dream, jealousy and desire driving him into an all-consuming outburst of blind fury. Ed, Ed, he's home. Can you come over, Ed? He's drinking again. I don't know what to do with him. Get away from that phone! He's got a knife! No, Daddy!
0: Were scenes from the 1952 screen classic Come Back Little Sheba, starring Burt Lancaster, Shirley Booth, and Terry Moore, as well as that seductive and fatale that comes between them. And Terry Moore, now 94 years old and one of the last surviving stars from the golden age of Hollywood, is on the line to Arts Express to talk about her life in movies and the stars she's known through the decades and her latest film, Silent Life, The Story of the Lady in Black, about an actual real-life mystery woman she portrays who has placed a red rose on silent screen idol Rudolf Valentino's grave every year since his passing in 1926. First, some scenes from The Story of the Lady in Black, then Terry Moore.
4: What is it you want to do, Rodolfo?
1: I want to become famous for the whole world to know about me.
2: Get in the car, quickly! Stop!
0: You If this man was able to drive crazy all the high society women in New York, what do you think will happen when we put them on the big screen? that? That's the lady in black.
3: You're a very well-mannered young man. But I don't give interviews. (laughs) Someone to love me. Hello?
0: Hi. Good morning. Yes, hi. Hi.
3: This is Terry.
0: All right. Uh, Well, welcome to the show.
3: Well, thank you very much. Tell me about your show.
0: The show is called Arts Express. And it's on the Pacifica National Radio across the country.
3: Wonderful. Okay. Uh, All right.
0: Please tell the listeners about your latest part in the upcoming Rudolph Valentino biopic, Silent Life, and that mysterious lady in black who visits Valentino's grave every year on his birthday and leaves a single red rose.
3: Well, that's the role I'm playing, and it's the first lead. And uh, it is so exciting because it has every emotional scene that I could possibly have. And uh, she visited him for six, over 60 years. And no one really ever spoke to her until this, in the f- film, uh, a, a, uh, a man and his photographers, they, she decides to speak with them and tell her, her story. And it's the most beautiful story, because Rudolph Valentino was the first, was the biggest sex symbol, and the first in Hollywood ever. And when he died, there were a hundred thousand women outside the hospital. And I love this role. It's it's the best role I think I've ever done. I did get a Academy Award nomination for Come Back, Little Sheba, but uh, if ever I could get an award, this would be the one. And I would so love that (laughs) for the end of my life to do that.
0: And what was it about Lady in Black that intrigued you to want to play her?
3: Well, it was so dramatic. It had every emotion you could possibly live and do. And and that's what I'm doing, and I'm just loving it. I just have never had the chance to put this much acting and emotion in one role.
0: And what are your own thoughts about who she was and why?
3: Well, when somebody falls in love, I mean, we really fall in love with screen people, everyone has, and uh, I know that I did for Clark Gable. And I saw him outside the studio, and I saw people every day, and Mother would say, there's Lucille Ball, there's this one, that one, and I'd say, okay, you know, I didn't even pay any attention. We were outside of MGM, and he walks by in his comes towards us in his real World War II uniform, and she says, there's Clark Gable. And I fainted, and <laughs> I almost passed out. Gable and my mother caught me. So even, I don't care, I was like... 12 years old, at any age, we can fall in love with someone on the screen.
0: And what can you reveal or not about the film and what you'll be up to in the movie?
3: Well, it's, there's so many surprises, and I'd like to leave it that way. It is. We have a wonderful director in Vlad Kozlov, and his wife is just does all the... Uh, publicity pictures, the pictures uh, for the billboards, and they're just beautiful. Uh, and there's, uh, I'm very excited because uh, Ingrid Bergman's daughter plays my plays Valentino's mother, and I played Ingrid Bergman as a child in the movie Gaslight, so I couldn't be happier about working with her. And all the actors that he's chosen from are some of the finest actors in London. And uh, Italy.
0: And what can you say about co-starring as Ingrid Bergman as a child and memories of Bergman and working with her?
3: I thought she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever met, and so kind and sweet to me. I mean, she was just like my real mother, and uh, we're both Swedish, so it made it just gave me such a, a connection to her.
0: Now, you've been described, I've seen, as, quote, one of the last stars still with us from the golden age of Hollywood. What are your thoughts about that and being part of that golden age?
3: Well, I was certainly part of it. I've worked in movies for 80 years. I started at 10 years old, so that's very true, and I love that I'm such a part of Hollywood and still here and still healthy and still happy and uh, have a marvelous, beautiful life. And still working, that's the best thing of all. <laughs> still doing yoga, still doing a boot camp with a uh, a captain from West Point, right across the street in the park. I'm across from the ocean and the dog park. I mean, I couldn't live any, any place. This is my dream place of all the places I've ever lived. It may not be a, a mansion, it's a marvelous um, condo. But it's 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 my happy house,
0: It's on the Pacific
3: yes, it is. It's in Santa Monica, California yeah.
0: and what do you miss most about the Golden Age of Hollywood and how movies have changed over the decades from that time?
3: I miss the contracts, I miss the studios, the way they were, the the Louis B Mayers, the Daryl Zancks, the the uh the Warners because they were people that started the movie industry that knew how pictures should be made and they they were talented. Uh the people today, they are own companies and and uh they're uh, it's a it's a whole different world. I mean, they don't really, they make pictures just for money, not for, uh, to make something beautiful. They don't go for the awards as much as they do the, uh, uh, the money.
0: Well, you know, that's what I like to say when people ask me, because I'm also a film critic, why don't you review this Hollywood movie or that Hollywood movie? And I say kind of sarcastically, I don't review children's movies.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect! I love that. It's so true.
0: <laughs> now, what about those golden age stars who are no longer with us? What can you say about some of them you miss the most?
3: I miss them the most. I mean, they were there's no one like it. Uh, my favorite actor ever to work with was Tyrone Power, and what most people know. I mean gable and power and jimmy stewart uh they all they were all uh uh, signed up immediately after pearl harbor and tyrone not only was he beloved by people and his father and his grandfather were big stars on stage but he in the war was shot down more he was a marine he shot down more enemy planes than any other marine which most people don't know. So, and Gable was a big hero. Uh, he, uh, Hitler said, "If you shoot, don't you know? Bring him in alive. <laughs> he wanted to meet him." <laughs> and uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart was a general. I mean, he was unreal. He had such a war record; it was unreal.
0: Now, what about the film which you were nominated for an Oscar for? Come back, Little Sheba. What are your memories of Burt Lancaster and working with Shirley Booth on that film?
3: I uh, Shirley was a great actress to work with, but I expected her to be like my grandmother, uh-huh. and, and she wasn't. And so she was a disappointment to me. It was not her fault, because I wanted Grandma back, and... Uh, uh, Bert Lancaster just stood by me all the time if any if the director was ever critical of me he'd say he's really criticizing me but he doesn't uh, dare to because you know I'm the biggest star on the movie but he said you're just wonderful in this and and just remember that and he was so wonderful to me when I uh, when I'd uh, run into him the rest of my life I remember I was at a party and and Lauren Bacall ran up to him and uh, my husband said to me uh, I I don't think he remembers you. He looked over and saw me and left Lauren to call and picked me up and twirled me around and said, Terry, Terry, my little Terry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, what would you like to say or not about being married to Howard Hughes?
3: Well, he was the love of my life, so I don't mind saying anything. And he, uh, people don't realize what a war he, what a hero he was. He, he. uh, of course, made the finest airplanes and everything for the war, but he was the first man to fly around the world. I mean, they talk about Lindbergh, who just flew the Atlantic, but Howard flew around the world and did more for aviation since the Wright brothers, and uh, invented planes and helicopters, and and I always loved airplanes. Even as a child, I built airplanes, the kind with the structures and that you had to put the uh, paper over and uh, uh, so when he offered to teach me to fly I jumped at the chance and I became the third woman in the world to check out in jet airplanes and he arranged for me to jump with the 82nd Airborne which I did because I love excitement I like real excitement just not movie excitement
0: (laughs) and you were friends as well with Marilyn Monroe and James Dean what are your memories of them and is there anything you'd like to reveal about either of them that only you know?
3: Well, I, Jimmy Dean, all he wanted to be was, rem- was Marlon Brando. <laughs> Loved Marlon. And he'd want me to call Marlon so he could listen in on the phone and just hear Marlon's voice. Oh. And he became a member of the Actors Studio so he could get a glimpse of Marlon when he left on his motorcycle. And um, I was the f- one of the first actresses to meet Marilyn as Marilyn Monroe because Max Arno, who was the head of all talent at Columbia Studios, brought her in and he said, now you won't have to do scenes alone anymore because I was the only one st- still working with the uh, the, uh, uh acting coach who was Natasha Lyte's. So Marilyn came in and we were able to do scenes together and sometimes I'd take her home to dinner with me because she was so lonely and my parents you know adored her. I, I would take all the stars I ever worked with home to dinner uh, Jimmy Dean too and uh, but Marilyn was much more intelligent, even much sweeter than anyone could realize. And Jane Russell later became my very closest friend till the day she died. And we both loved and cared for Marilyn very much.
0: Well, you know, it sounds like this movie about Rudolph Valentino, it sounds like they should be making a biopic about you. You've had such a rich history.
3: <laughs> well, do you know, actually, there is a producer in London, what's his name, Paul... Ward. Uh, uh, Paul Ward, and he, he's, he's uh, having a picture written right now. Oh, great. Yes, I hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, what about being in Playboy when you were 50 years old? What were you up to in Playboy, and why did you go for that?
3: I was 55 years old, oh, okay. and uh, I was the oldest person ever to be in Playboy, and my husband said, wanted me to do it so badly, I said, no way. I said, uh, Hefner, uh, Hugh Hefner came to my daddy's mother's house and wanted to put me on the cover of the first issue before they got Maryland And daddy just threw him out. I mean, he was horrified. And my background has been a Mormon background. My grandfather was a Mormon bishop, and they were just absolutely horrified at the thought, even. And Uh, I told my husband, no, and he said, look, they said that you can see the pictures. If you don't like them, they won't use them, and they will be, uh, they're going to do it like old paintings. They won't show any pubic hair or anything that, you know, uh, they'll be in great taste. So I, I... Disagreed for a long time. I finally agreed, and they—I never. When I saw the pictures, they were the most beautiful pictures that I'd ever had in my life. I mean, and I was so thrilled about them. I finally, with his coaching, uh, and and begging me to do that, let them go. And I think it did almost more for my career than all my movies put together.
0: Now, what are your thoughts or what comes to mi- what thoughts come to mind for you looking back on your very prolific and eminent career in movies? You've been in like a hundred movies.
3: Yes, I have. And, and what was the oh, question? Oh,
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> and what comes to mind, what thoughts come to mind for you looking back on your very prolific and eminent career?
3: Which was my favorite movie or what?
0: Well, I, I guess just how you've lived your life and movies.
3: Yes, I have, and and I've loved that, and and I've loved the friends I've made. Um, I was very close to Roddy McDowell and and Elizabeth Taylor and and uh, uh, all uh, Jane Powell. We all got together every Saturday, either Jane Powell's or. Uh, Roddy McDowell's home and we just had great time as kids in the movie magazines we loved all that and being together and uh I stayed friends to the to the day they all died of the people from Mighty Joe Young I just loved doing that movie it was so much fun it was a good clean movie and and before my career t- kind of turned around to very sexy on um, Come Back, Little Sheba, I did animal pictures. I did uh, Elizabeth Taylor, did Son of Lassie. I did Lassie Come Home. I did Mighty Joe Young, which was a gorilla. I did The Great Rupert uh, for George Powell, and Rupert was a squirrel with Jimmy Durante. And it just went on and on and on until uh, it turned around into uh, uh, grown-up roles, and I get get my first kiss from Glenn Ford in a movie. (laughs) called Return of October.
0: Ah. What can you say about your film, Saving Flora, about helping a circus elephant escape who's about to be euthanized?
3: Oh, I'll tell you, I love elephants, because when I made um, The uh, Man on a Tightrope opposite Frederick March with Elia Kazan directing, I did an act with an elephant, and uh, I danced with an elephant, and I went on with a circus every Every evening, I just fell in love with elephants. I, the only reason I did that role is I wanted to be, work with an elephant again. <laughs>
0: and what about filming American Superman? I see your build as, quote, woman on the bus.
3: Really? I don't <laughs> well, that, that's what it remember says. doing that.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, that's what it says on IMDb. Well, they often get information incorrect. So. Yeah, I, I, don't,
3: I don't think I did that.
0: Okay, well, no, it says it's filming. But, okay, it must be another Terry Moore, okay. Must be. <laughs> now, you also... The male. Now, you also worked in radio in the 1940s as Bunny Smith. Is it Bunny Smith? I can't
3: read No, it's, uh, um, oh. let me see, I worked as uh, Smith. Oh, oh, oh I worked...
0: Bump Smith. Smith. I'm sorry, I can't read my own handwriting. Okay. Well, I'll repeat that again. Now, you also worked in radio in the 1940s as Bump Smith on The Smiths of Hollywood. What can you say about that since we're having a radio conversation?
3: Oh, I had, so I loved radio because after I did the movie, my first movie, Maryland, I had braces on my teeth and my teeth got crooked again because every time I'd make a movie, they'd take my braces off and then I would lose what I'd gained from the braces. So I just went into radio and I loved radio because I didn't have to wear makeup or worry how we all dressed up. And on that show, Arthur Treacher played my uncle Cecil, and Brenda Marshall, William Holden played my mother, and in the beginning, Bill Holden played my father. And uh, uh, guest stars were like uh, Lucille Ball and all these marvelous stars I worked with on that show. I had so much fun. And I was a little older than 12, which Bumps was, So I'd, uh, but everyone, I was small, so everybody thought I was younger because I dressed younger, wore no makeup, and Arthur Treacher always had me stand on a bench to, uh, or a, a box to talk with him because he was <laughs> so tall.
0: Yeah, Well, you might like radio even more these days in the digital age, where you don't even have to go into the studio. You could be on the radio at home in your pajamas.
3: <laughs> oh, I'd love that.
0: <laughs> now, one final question. When you look in the mirror, what does Terry Moore see?
3: I see, I'm kind of happy with what I see because of my Mormon background. I never drank or smoked, and I don't drink coffee. or tea and I exercise a lot and uh, I'm holding up pretty well.
0: (laughs) Okay, well thank you so much Terry Moore.
3: Well thank you very much and good luck and have a a beautiful happy life. God bless you.
0: Okay and I really look forward to the film.
3: Thank you. You're going to like it. I can't wait for it too.
0: (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye honey. God bless. And coming up next on Arts Express
5: Hi, this is the UK Desk for Arts Express, and my name's Brett Gregory. Over recent weeks, we've been exploring cinema, not only as a playground for entertainment, escapism and egos, but also as an economic, political and ideological battleground for social class, gender, ethnicity, technology, and, as we're going to discover in this evening's episode, sexuality.
4: Hi, my name is Darren Elliott-Smith. I'm a senior lecturer in film and gender, and I teach at the University of Stirling in Scotland in the UK. My research specialisms are in the representation of LGBTQ people in the horror genre, and I'm arguing that it's more recently that this has moved out from the shadowy realms of implicit and symbolic representation of yesteryear.
5: So how are we to understand queer theory as a critical approach to cinema and its relationship to, say, Marxism?
4: I suppose it depends on your understanding of queer as a theory and how the term and the ideology has altered in recent years. For me, it's often kind of obvious that there are two strands, at least two strands to queer theory, one being around identity politics and attempting to offer what Harry Benshoff describes as an oxymoronic community of difference. So this is a kind of paradox, I suppose, in itself that captures the problematic existence within queer culture and queer theory. But queer as a word and as an ideology, in my understanding, also still disturbs some people, depending on your social persuasion or your generation or your background in lots of different ways. And in terms of where this fits with Marxism, queer activism all drew upon socialist rhetoric that called for change, a change whereby the queer collective were being marginalized crushed and effectively killed by capitalist imperialist middle-class white hetero and pride though afar far removed from the activist origins of pride marches in the 1970s and 1980s still retains some of that need for change to look after the collective and therefore the individual as they exist within the mass free from the oppression of that ruling elite
5: And how does this inform a queer understanding of the horror genre in particular? Interestingly,
4: many of the works of early horror film theorists in the 1970s, particularly the definitive work of queer film scholar Robin Wood, utilised both a, a lesbian and gay approach with a socialist and Marxist approach as well. So he argued that Using a little bit of psychoanalysis merged with Marxism, that those ideals and energies that don't fit the bourgeois capitalist, imperialist, and white patriarchal culture of production and reproduction are cast out as other across this imaginary border, which then set up the binary of us versus them. The problem is that actually within horror and within a lot of gothic narratives, the them or they sometimes come back. In fact, they always come back. Repression and oppression eventually is shown to fail in the horror narrative, causing this monster, creature, killer, or infection, whatever it is, to come back and and threaten that pure individual that's meant to represent the us.
5: Can you give us a specific film example where the us and them binary becomes blurred?
4: In kind of focusing on this theory, he collapsed the us versus them binary. And we see this most critically... Skewered in films like George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, whereby the undead, the zombie, the returned kind of reanimated corpse, who once was human, once was us, become a them figure. And then they return to assimilate everybody else into this undead horde, where children eat parents and the sole survivor, which in this case is Ben, blackmail, is gunned down by white vigilantes at the end of the film, who mistake him. For one of them even though he's not zombified he's actually still human and very much alive and Romero's point is that the gun-toting white male doesn't see any difference actually all exist in an other state.
5: So what is the scope of horror films and television shows which is under consideration here?
4: Queer horror, although I'd argue that all horror is queer in that it seems to represent the odd, the strange, the non-normative, and as a genre it seeks to distress, to upset, and to challenge, and to scare. It's, for me, a set of films and TV shows that are made normally by LGBTQ creatives, that foreground queerness as an element of representation in some way. But this subgenre also includes historical considerations as influences upon these newer texts. So it's it's important in order to understand how we get to these newer out contemporary horror films and shows. So in order to do that, we have to look at what a lot of academics and myself call closeted text-like interview, with The Vampire, The Hunger, Psycho, Bride of Frankenstein. All these films that kind of clearly have LGBTQ themes running through them, but never really explicitly kind of outwardly state that they are. So they involve some kind of symbolic interpretation or reading.
5: From a historical perspective, the Hayes Code, which was introduced in the 1930s, clearly had a resounding effect on cinema's representations, narratives and themes. Could you tell us a little bit more about this?
4: So the Hayes Code was set up after a series of scandals rocked Hollywood and people were worried about the debauched world of filmmaking as one that kind of might infect supposedly decent heteronormative family life. One particular case that's often cited is that uh, the star uh, Fatty Arbuckle being accused of raping a young starlet in the early 1920s. So Will Hayes set up a production code that would monitor the content of all film productions and those that were released in US cinemas. Preventing certain elements and themes and narratives that they deemed would seek to poison U.S. ideology. It's uh, Vito Russo's documentary and book The Celluloid Closet outlines this really well in terms of the impact on LGBTQ plus folks. In particular, the rule that existed within the Hays Code was the rule that films strictly prohibited any depiction of what was called sex perversion. So this impacted any explicit representation of any non-normative sexuality or romance. So some films had to get around this by using symbolism, inference, suggestion, so as to ensure that their true audience were being represented in, and seen in films. And some directors, queer affiliated directors, were kind of doing this deliberately, coding their films in, in a way.
5: For example...
4: The universal franchise of horror films from the 30s and the 40s were actually playing with the limitations of the code as well, uh, it being kind of recently introduced. So the suggestion here becomes quite pointed at times and there's a practice of rebellion in a small way. And this was more pushed, I suppose, by the makers of these films. So if we can kind of go to certain auteurs, film directors like Todd Browning, whose sexuality was often kind of questioned, but never fully defined. He made the pre-code film Freaks, which is a problematic, but also really interesting kind of queer film um, in its representation of non-normative body types. There's also James Whale who is a a gay British director uh, who ramped up the suggestion in his version of Frankenstein that he directed and even more so in the kind of more comedic and kind of almost parodic Bride of Frankenstein where we have this homoerotic triangle literally exploding off off the screen between Frankenstein the creature and Dr Pretorius as well.
5: And once again social class is at play in such horror films as well isn't it?
4: class definitely comes into it again drawing on those early marxist readings from franco moretti on the nature of the capitalist blood-sucking vampire configured more recently as as a corporate ceo or landed gentry or an aristocrat versus the underclass or working class proletariat of the zombie or a mindless slave and we see a kind of a a literal version of this in the depiction of haitian voodoo in um, early rko texts like i walked with a zombie but the queerness present in the upper classes is something I suppose that's reflected on as a consideration of effect, queer men, idiosyncratic in their tastes, often overindulged with an emphasis on the pursuit of overwhelmed senses. And that kind of stereotypical kind of depiction of upper class queerness is existent in early Gothic texts like Jekyll and Hyde and Doreen Gray, where the upper classes are seen to wallow in debauchery. And that's propped up by generations of wealth. Them having the time, the money, the power to indulge in seemingly perverse desires,
5: and queer horror is still disrupting and destabilising popular conservative sensibilities today as well, isn't it?
4: Well, the recent remake of Hellraiser wasn't received so well by so-called purist horror fans. Um, they took against its more explicit queer content and they rejected, in particular, the idea of trans actor Jamie Clayton as as the new Pinhead. I mean, not realising that this film was written, you know, by a gay male author directed by the same man, Clive Barker, and inspired by his experiences of BDSM queer practices that he saw in Berlin nightclubs. And it's quite clear that it's queer from the get go.
5: And your academic work at present is exploring the relationship between queer horror, trauma and mental health. Is that correct?
4: So my recent work looks at the impact of of neoconservative, neoliberal ideologies upon the LGBTQ individual's mental health and how horror and gothic is often the go-to genre for the representation of this. So recently we've seen a few films that foreground this utilising horror tropes. Hypochondriac from 2022 focuses on this young man who fears that he's inherited his his mother's mental illness, but sees himself split into two versions of himself. One is a wolfman. The other is this kind of non-normative, seemingly kind of normal queer individual. And other films like Thelma from 2018, which is a Swedish supernatural film about a girl with Carrie-like powers who comes to terms with her own lesbianism that has been repressed by her staunch religious parents. And even the recent series of American Horror Story, uh, NYC, attempts to come to terms with personal and cultural trauma that's affected the queer community and also, you know, across the world, but particularly in New York via various, albeit from my perspective, they're quite clunky allegories and explicit narratives around the AIDS crisis in the
5: 1980s. And we must never forget that with the current rise in right-wing attitudes in both the US and the UK, there are real lives at stake here.
4: So it seems that in the past few years, that actually things have become even more obvious that being different, being LGBTQ in today's world can be scary. Our rights are being taken away one by one. These hard-won equalities that have been rolled back and our existence as legally equal is increasingly becoming very precarious. So it's a really interesting time, I think, for theorists and also from filmmakers to to kind of think about the ways in which we can kind of start to kind of think about how cultural theory that once oppressed and stigmatized queer people is now being reinterpreted, reexpressed, and represented to allow queer filmmakers and theorists to take up that mode of address that can offer critiques of the establishment and of also our own subcultures and of those that still oppress us.
5: Fantastic, Darren. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Your cinematic observations have been both illuminating and important. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express, and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers.
0: And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.